Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. This week on Startup Dads, our guest is Chris Howard, CEO and co-founder of The Rattle, a global collective of artists, inventors and founders. He's also dad to two-year-old Eddie and his second is due any day now. In this show, we cover honest truths about headspace in the first few months of startup dad life, how startup skills can be useful in unexpected domains and optimism as a learned skill. As always, it's great to hear from you all. So do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, Reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santharasanan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. Chris Howard, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the show today. We'll talk about it a little bit more, but your impending dad, again, super excited and terrified for you. My palms sweat when I go back to think a little about what it was like the first time round. But Chris, let's go. Um, what makes you a startup dad? Oh, dear. So I became a startup dad in my first year of founding no, it wasn't even, oh my word, I screwed up already. It's my second year. 2019, I became a startup dad. It was the second year of The Rattle, which is the company I currently currently lead and co-founded. And I was raising our second round of money. And I don't know what it is about fundraising and having kids, but I seem to be doing it again. Are you? <laughs> raising money and oh, having wow. a kid at the same time. Yeah, it's like, oh, mate, it's, that is a journey. I can, yeah, I can lose all of our lives in that one. Um, so yeah, I was building the rattle, raising our first major round. And um, little Eddie popped out in February 2019. My world stopped for a couple of weeks, which was a really strange thing because you're not really used to, when you're a founder, you're not used to your world just stopping. You often think it's always your choice. You kind of say to yourself, okay, I can choose when to stop. I can choose when to turn my brain off or when to turn it on. And you think that's a choice, but most founders, like well, I find at least, you can never turn your brain off. But when little Eddie came, my brain turned off. And I was like, oh shit, I now have to look after a kid. <laughs> Keep him alive, right? Yeah. Um, but we had, um, when Eddie was born, we actually had a really, you know, we had a pretty challenging, uh, pretty challenging time of it. and. Um, I've later come to learn that this is fairly, well, not necessarily normal, but it's not uncommon. So Eddie, Eddie was born with uh, a collapsed lung. And then as he tried to breathe, he tore his lung and, and got a sepsis. And so for about six weeks, he was like on and off, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I was raising money at the same time. And any kind of founder CEO will, um, will know that you know, fundraising is about momentum. And if you lose that momentum, it's not just about recovering the time. It's about building all those relationships back to the point that you need to get to. And you have all of this fear over your mind around people thinking that you're somehow making something up because the raise isn't going so well or whatever it may be. But um, yeah, little Eddie came out just as I was at the very tail end of this round and he got very, very sick. And so that was genuinely one of the hardest things I've ever done in, in my whole life. Um, but uh, we, we did it. We nailed it. Eddie came out and well now done. he's obsessed with dinosaurs and breaking things. So, 
Yeah. Awesome. Like 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 all good yeah, kids should. Absolutely. Breaking things is a favorite <laughs> hobby. Dinosaurs, moo cows, and breaking things. I'm always amazed when I talk to founders. The two things you've talked about, like one, you get it done somehow, but also in founder world, it very rarely does stop. But when you have a kid, it does, right? It's so so hard to explain, isn't it? It's You literally go, wow, like I, I haven't thought about X, Y, Z for three days. It scared me. I was generally like, oh no, is this how it's going to be forever? Because the company might die. <laughs> Um, it's like, obviously, you know, you prioritize your, your kids, but, um, I didn't realize how biologically your brain will do that. It's not, it's not a choice. It just, it just does it. And that really, really surprised, especially under the circumstances. It's one of those amazing things I find that, and I think, you know, if you're a founder before you're a dad, you can't actually quite relate to about not caring about your startup for a little while, right? Uh, and I remember, you know, I, I remember people, and uh, this is a really arrogant thing to say, but I remember people thinking, oh, you know, it's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. The best thing I've ever made was my child. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, but you're not making eight checks, which is never my business, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> what a douche yeah. thing to say. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but, and then it happens to you and you're like, no, you're right, you know? And I remember because it's very something very similar. I mean, not as anywhere near as scary. I won't even try and... Uh, understand what you must have gone through when Eddie's lung collapsed or bad things happened like that. But Evie, my daughter, she was born a month early. Mm. And, you know, month early kids, she was five pounds something. She was a tiny, I remember she fit, like she was the kind of size of my hand and half my elbow. She was absolutely tiny. And I remember uh, at that time going, it's cool. Nothing else really matters. And, you know, the amazing thing is, and I do remember reflecting on this, particularly as a founder, because I think early stages, you're like, my business isn't going to survive without me. And of course it was completely fine. Right, the business was absolutely fine. It turns out I'm actually not going to. The, the world doesn't stop. The Ajax doesn't completely implode if I'm not <laughs> around for a couple of weeks. I, and I think actually we closed a, a reasonably big sale. My team were like, "It was great." Amory gets out of the way, and actually everything's much better this way. I'm going to go have lots of kids, uh, and everything be fine. Yeah, that kind of autonomy you have with your team. I was lucky enough to have um, a really kind of well knit team at the time, and you kind of, to some degree, practice having a family when you stuff and i know that sounds weird it's not the same but it's you're kind of practicing the the kind of levels of trust you have to have and so when you do disappear it's something i didn't realize at the time when you do disappear my co-founder in particular john but all the team as a whole kind of just leaned in and just filled the gaps and uh he just didn't you just don't think that that's what's going to happen but it, it it really did happen I, t- I tell you what it sounds like i had a slightly different different experience in terms of how I felt about it compared to what you just said. I kind of feel like maybe I'm a bit of a dick, but like for the first kind of three to four months, oh, this is going to sound so horrible, but I do say this to my friends. So it's not like, it's not a secret. I just didn't, it felt very mechanical. Does that make any sense? It makes total sense. It makes total sense. And I think, I think it's really important that we talk about these things as parents. I can tell you that I have gone through, actually speaking very honestly, recently, my daughter's 20 months and she's still not sleeping well, right? And I'd be straight with you, like, it's not always fun. I don't think, oh, yeah, you, you, we're conditioned, right? In the world we live in with social media and all these sorts of things, it's presented as something that, you know, is your life's mission and you will feel an inviolable, completely unstoppable urge to push through all the time. And, you know, I think you do, but I don't think, you've, I don't think it's always obvious 
that you're going to feel great about it. Like, I, I don't think that's true. So I, I don't think it's a dickish thing to say at all. It's just, it's just so strange. It's like that, you know, that period of time, I was watching how close my wife was getting to, to Eddie and, you know, obviously, you know, physically, emotionally. Um, and it, it, I kind of, I wasn't jealous or anything like that. But at the same time, I was like, okay, you got that. Nice one. What do you, what do you need, mum? Do you want some tea? So it's tidy up? So it's clean? All good? Cool. I'm going back to work. <laughs> and you kind of, it wasn't really until there was like really obvious communication between baby and dad, baby and me, or Eddie and myself, that the bond really became something that people were describing. And, and it was, it was kind of after that, that Eddie became like a permanent fixture in my head throughout my entire professional life. But prior to that point, it sounds so strange, but prior to maybe four or five months, I would go to work not really thinking about, you know, Eddie. And it's not because I wasn't loving him or anything like that. It was more that in my mind, I'm like, yeah, cool. That's nailed and sorted. I'll do my bit when I get there. And my brain just switches into work mode. Whereas I can't do that anymore. Absolutely not, because the relationship is different. But I was, I was actually really quite scared. <laughs> In the first few months that I might have been a psychopath. <laughs> and I was just like, am I a monster? <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting. We've been talking about this. We've got quite a few startup dads at HX now. And I think well, your story is actually really very common. And, you know, one thing I think that it's an insight that's worth, you know, for potential startup dads who listen to the show. At the beginning of a, a baby's life, the dad's role is generally a support crew, Right. That's, yeah. that's what you do. You support, like the mother is the... With roadies. Yeah, that's right, right, exactly. Roadies is a good way of describing it, right? You make sure <laughs> that everything is is there for mum to do her job because they're amazing, absolutely amazing, yeah. uh, uh, you sad. know, mums are. And I think, speaking really honestly, that can be, for a founder, quite convenient, right? If we're going to just look at it in the face, like it can actually be really good to know I've got some operational tasks to do and I can interleave those, uh, interleave those with my work. And, you know, that can actually feel pretty good, right? Because you don't actually feel like you're letting the side down if you're, as long as you're doing a good job of support. And it really changes, right? Like you say, when you're a child mm. and you develop a bond with your child, then it's actually, you know, that's not the sort of thing that you can do while frying eggs or, you know, making porridge, right? <laughs> um, you need to be there really present. That's one of those funny things, right? That actually... It perversely sounds like you'd expect the beginning to be really hard, but the roles change, right? Your roles do change. And that's when your investment changes with your own child. And therefore, the amount of headspace you have to give to your business changes. And it's, yeah, I think, it, I think it's a totally, really honest... Uh, we've not talked about this on the show, so it's cool to actually do this. <laughs> do you know what? And, and like, what is interesting is at the beginning with Eddie, when he was born, like he was, first of all, he was two weeks late, and then he was sick for six weeks. Like, I took, I took time off work, you know, a week before the due date. Because I wanted to kind of sort the house out, help Rebecca because she was flipping massive and couldn't get through the doors. And I wanted to like, you know, be a good dad, get everything set up. They were waiting for two weeks where I felt my job was to give back rubs and go on long walks. And then I took paternity leave to some degree. And I, I intended to take two weeks and then come back. But obviously, because he was ill, I ended up taking quite a bit of time off. Um, but I was still managing those investor relationships at the same time. Whereas this time around, with this next baby who's you know a week late already, little critter, I'm not going to do that because to me, I'll probably take a very small. I'm working all the way to the point where it literally falls out, 
So today my calendar is insane, but everybody, and so is tomorrow and every day, but everyone's been kind of prepped to say, hey, at any moment, I might not just, I might have to leave or just, just not turn up. And you know, that's the price of you know, us having an arrangement. And when uh, this next baby's born, I'm going to take probably a, a week to 10 days of just like, you know, make sure everything's good at home, just make sure the baby's well and safe, just kind of ease, ease the pressure psychologically from my wife. Then after that, I'm going back to work four days a week until the end of this year. Uh, and it's going to be next year that I take a significant period of time off to, because it's that bonding time at month four to six that I really want to nail. So that's how this one is different. But I think it's having that plan. You know, everyone's different, of course. I can only speak for myself. But um, it's one of the things that I kind of regret in baby one is I kind of took too much time out at the beginning when I just really didn't need to. You know, the, the real magic for me was, a, as I say, month four to six. Lots of our shows zero in on the entrepreneurship and how you fit the, put the dad bits around it. But this is super cool to talk about it the other way around. You know what, that that doesn't surprise me. But at the same time, it, and, and I mean this with a ton of respect, because a lot of the people who you've spoken about that you've had these conversations with are, are idols of mine. Right? And one of them is even a mentor. Right. But it's it does annoy me for some reason that people seem utterly obsessed of trying to prove that they're somehow these superhuman business people that have kids. It's like, no, no, what ridiculous, it's utter nonsense. We're all humans, we're just normal humans that devote ourselves to a different path to others. And that doesn't mean that we are somehow special at going, oh yeah, I like, I need to fit my kid in around my startup, or my startup around my kid. It's like, no, I'm like anybody else who has a job and has a kid. And this kind of weird thing where people need to prove themselves professionally all the time, it just drives me mad. <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting because one of the motivations that I had for doing this show is exactly what you said there is actually to lift that veneer a little bit. Because, you know, it always occurred to me that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos, they can still get pissed on by their child, right? <laughs> you know, you, could, you, could, you, you, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you build a trillion dollar business or not. When you change a nappy, your child doesn't give a fuck, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't care about your ARR growth or, you know, your free clash flow, right? And I think... That's the sort of thing that I wanted to actually talk about, about the realities of life and how, and how you make it work. Because there's no way, you know, it's very unlikely, I think, if people choose to do the, both the two very hard things of having a child and doing a startup at the same time, that it's a smooth journey. Oh, God, hell no. There's a few things that these preconceptions about being a, a startup founder, particularly a funded founder, and, and, you know, you will know this as well as each other, that many, many people believe founders or entrepreneurs have loads of money. Yeah. And so therefore when you have a kid, you get a nanny. It's just really not the case. Like I've been lucky enough to, you know, found a well, half a dozen companies of which two have exited. And even now, like I can't afford a nanny. Like I put all my money back into my businesses and it's like my capacity to kind of somehow outsource the kind of looking after and growth of a of a kid. It's just a fantasy. It doesn't exist. It's not true of every startup founder and those who are, who have the capacity to outsource, good for them if that's what they want to do. But yeah, for the vast majority, it's just not true. And, but people treat you like it's true. People expect you to have a nanny or, I know that's, sorry, I'm being gender specific there. I don't mean to be gender specific. People think there's a, a childcare and, and somebody to kind of outsource your help to. But 
it's really not the case. And a lot of people had that assumption of me. So they were like, oh, surely you're, uh, you know, your babysitter will take care of it. I'm like, well, who's that? Is that you? <laughs> like, you coming around? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. That was one of the things that really got to me, if I'm honest, because um, especially when Eddie was ill and he was in hospital, they were like, hey, he's in hospital. Cool. He's got the best care. Why don't you come back? And I'm like, do you understand how the human brain works? Like, there is zero chance <laughs> I could come back in right now and design the next step of our product with you. It's just, I'm sorry. Like, I would do a terrible job if I come in and I'll probably want to kill you. And let's um, let's just leave the human brain to the human brain. Thanks very much. Um, I feel like I'm meandering all over the place. I'm sorry. That's quite all right. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's absolutely great. Um, I, I think we're covering lots of things that we don't talk about on the show very often, which I think is really important, actually, right? Which is about preconceptions about founder life and actually how it works. And I think, you know, the, the phrase I always joke about when people go, wow, I mean, it's going so well. It's like, well, I can't buy anything with HX stock right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's cool. Your good vibes don't pay the rent. Mate. Yeah. You know, it's nice. Like that. I've got this built this great business and it's ostensibly very valuable. Um, but ultimately you can't do anything with that. It's not like you go to the NASDAQ or the FTSE and you're slicing off a little, a few million here or there. Right? It doesn't work like that. So, totally. so yeah. yeah. But maybe, maybe we can segue onto your business side of things because, you know, learning a little bit about you, it was so interesting to hear about your initiative, your, your collective, The Rattle. So The Rattle, it looks like bringing together startups and the arts. And I'd really love to hear a little bit about your journey and motivation for creating The Rattle because ostensibly, I suppose, again, people associate startups with technology you know, the kind of the startup darlings in the world are these hyper growth, you know, low marginal cost digital businesses. And as I thought about the rattle, I thought, actually, well, I think, you know, successful arts initiatives do scale a lot, but on the face of it, they look a little bit like chalk and cheese. So could you talk to us a little bit about your motivation and kind of the learnings you've had about building something like the rattle? Uh, yeah, sure. And forgive me if this ends up a two-hour answer. Um, so I guess the rattle itself comes from mine and my co-founders' kind of personal experiences, really. My journey began as a, as a music artist in my late teens, early 20s. I, I tried to tour and be famous and all those things, but you know, toured around for quite some time, supported some really big bands, played some big major festivals, but uh, I was either too, <laughs> I was either too ugly or I was, maybe I was just really bad and I just didn't, I just didn't succeed. Uh, the, the band was called Optimist, by the way, so that's uh, a little vein in my life. But um, after that, I did what any self-respecting musician would do when you believe at least your music is over. I went and did, to MIT, did a PhD in computational physics and psychology. Well, actually, in truth, I didn't get my PhD at MIT. I got my PhD in the UK between Reading and Warwick. I did my postdoc at MIT, although a lot of people just like to say I did PhD at MIT because it sounds cooler. And so I did my research at, at MIT, and it was in 2009 when the whole ecosystem in Boston was just like, there's a lot of fuck the man attitude there because it was just as the credit crunch was hitting its peak, you know, that, that horrible financial crisis moment. So many people were thrown out of work, you know, particularly the nerds, you know, it, those who weren't necessarily in sales were thrown out with a laptop and three months pay. And all of these kind of super talented grads had no jobs to go into. And so places like Y Combinator and Techstars and the MIT ecosystem just became this magnet for this disgruntled, angry, kind of, they've done this to us type community. And 
they all kind of started inventing things and each person supported somebody else. And I got really addicted to it. So I turned through the help of one of my first mentors, a guy called John Landry, who was the founder of Lotus Technology. He convinced me to turn my research into a tech startup. And so I founded something called Laboo, which is a quasi-psychology advertising community platform for authors to help them understand who their greatest fans are and how to leverage their support. Grew it, lots of venture capital. I eventually destroyed like a lot of the company by screwing up my personal life. So screwing up the balance between my personal life and being a CEO. We were like super darling company coming out of tech stars, raised loads of money. And then I just absolutely screwed up being able to balance myself. And before I pulled the company down, I exited, handed over to um, my COO at the time, who then took it to like a, a modest acquisition. And so in the aftermath of that, I kind of vowed to myself never to let that happen to anybody else. I managed to walk away with a little bit of money. I became entrepreneur residence at Techstars. I was a late co-founder of Europe's Mass Challenge. I fell in love with this process called venture building, which is where you write a small check uh, to some ultra nerds or some super talented humans, uh, join their team for six months or so, and then step out. Um, so you're a little bit like a co-founder of hire, a little bit like an angel investor. And I did that about six times, and three of them have been hugely successful. One, one died, and two are still going. And I realized that actually, if I had if I'd known all of this stuff when I was a music artist, you know, the practices and tools and techniques of understanding the differences between a brand, a product, and a business, if I understood that, I would never have put in music. And all these other artists will probably be able to thrive without compromising the music and the art that they make. So the rattle essentially is trying to do what MIT did for me, but we want to do for artists. And that's to use this swell of disgruntled anger and this kind of motivation to make things better and provide them with the tools that great founders use to see if they can hack their own business model, hack their own products and hack their own brand. So the rapper, we've been trying to do that for about four years now. We've supported about 400 new ventures. We operate in London and Los Angeles and we're very well backed, which is lovely. And we're aiming to essentially be the wide combinator of counterculture. That's, that's our goal. And we think we're on a good track together. It's really cool. It's fascinating. The question that comes to mind, Chris, is when you talk to someone who is, you know, like you say, you talk about the counterculture, how do they feel about engaging with a venture-backed business? Have you felt any resistance there? Is it- they don't care. To be honest, like there will always be people in this universe that will have a chip on their shoulder about anyone. It doesn't matter who. And they're always very vocal. And that's okay. I respect that. Everyone has their opinion. So long as we are comfortable with where our money comes from, you know, so a lot of the initial backing came from myself and my co-founder. And then uh, we vet all of our investors and our VCs. Like we've turned down a lot of money because we want to make sure the integrity passes through. So we turned out money from major labels, from VCs and investors that have either you know, reputations for sexism or racism. We made sure that we vetted everybody in the way that we would hope our members would vet them um, or our portfolio would, would vet them. But the truth is, is we live in a capitalist world. And regardless of anyone's ideology, like it is what it is. And if you want your art to make a difference, if you want the things you make to affect society, 
you have to kind of play the game a bit. And we're about helping them play the game, well, hack the game, to be totally honest with you, is to hack the system by using it against itself. Yeah. And I, that was the thing that actually, when I was thinking about the rattle, that actually stuck out to me. Because on the face of it, I was like, how, you know, artists, creators, sovereign people, how does that work with startups? But I actually thought to myself, a very successful artist goes through a scaling journey that's probably not that dissimilar to a very successful startup, right? When you get traction and people want, and you, it's, it's growth, right? Ultimately, it's like growth in the demand for your product. If you really boil down what a great founder or a great founding team is, they're inventors, right? They'll invent something that changes human behavior. Something as benign as, I want to change the way you code so you're not using a stupid notepad and you're using this beautiful IDE all the way to something grand, like I want you to care about the planet. They ultimately affect a subset of humans and changes their behavior. Well, art does that by default. And so you, the first step of becoming a great founder is intuitive to an artist. And so, you know, building that brand, establishing your position, getting people to know you for what it is you intend to do in the future is a natural step that every artist has, every comedian has, every filmmaker has, every journalist has. But it's the step after that of going, right, what do I sell? That's the crossover which um, artists stumble at. Whereas tech founders or what we would classically consider startup founders, it, that's baked in the language of the lean startup and whatever else. So it's that transformation of going from brand and inventor to product maker that the rattle wholeheartedly focuses on. And when we see people transition into not just being an inventor, but a product maker, we'll then double down with capital, sweat, equity, all these kind of things. And there's no difference. You affect human behavior, you create a product based upon the human behavior you affect, and then you wrap up a business model that lets it scale. It's, it's exactly the same. It's like lots of good startup ideas, I suppose, is you don't think it's obvious until you hear about it. Uh, and then actually it seems like it. Awesome. Well, maybe I could pull on a thread that you, you talked about just a second ago that I was also super interested in, um, which is optimism. So your band was called Optimist. You launched an agency called We Are Optimists. I was listening to a podcast. We had an awesome startup entrepreneur founder called Will Schroeter on the show a few episodes ago. He has a podcast called Startup Therapy, where he talks a lot about the challenges that founders face. And actually, it's a really good show. I, I listen to it a lot because, you know, when you're feeling low, sometimes uh, as a founder, it can be really good to hear the, the pain and suffering that your friends are going through Absolutely. Uh, in the world and realize that you're not alone. Um, kind of morbid, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, collective pain is slightly dampened somewhat. But um, one of the things they were talking about is optimism and how actually what do founders run on, right? When the shit hits the fan and actually, quite frankly, even when things are going really well and, you know, you're clinging onto the rocket ship, you know, Stripe have this really great phrase that building a high growth business is like a tower defense game. Like the, the more successful you get, the more shit keeps coming at you, right? And you've got to deal with it. And so I, I was really interested when I saw the optimism and, you know, it comes across in the way you, you go about your business as well. Um, so I'm really interested in your thoughts about the role of optimism in founder life and in being happy and successful if you're going to do the startup thing. Yeah, that's... It's something I don't think about directly, but uh, I'll put my psychologist hat and see if I can reverse engineer. Like confidence, optimism isn't really a, an emotion. It's something you do. So you do confidence and you do optimism. And it's more often than not a practice. So you practice being confident, you practice being optimistic. 
I think one of the big misconceptions is these are things that you either do have or you don't have. But that's completely, completely not true. Um, even going back to William James in the early 1900s, the kind of forefather of modern psychology, that the vast majority of things we believe are emotions are just practice behaviors. And so I guess optimism for me is a, is a deeply practiced behavior because when I was really young, I grew up in a pretty shit town in a pretty poor and bad neighborhood. My parents were ultra working class, filling vending machines and working in a supermarket. You kind of had to make a choice. You kind of had to either, you know, become a bully or become a nerd when you were growing up in that kind of world. And I, I chose being a nerd. And so you have to kind of be optimistic. <laughs> you have to practice optimism in order to thrive in that kind of environment without becoming the person who beats everybody up. That and the fact I'm too weedy, but that's not the point. And so to me, optimism is just a bit of an ingrained behavior. And I've only just, in my early professional life, learned to label it optimism. Yeah, now I think about it, it's, I think it's a common behavior across founders, more than it is an ingredient required to be a good founder. I think there comes this sense where when you start to affect others and others' capacity to do what you know, or you believe, sorry, will help propel your vision forward. If you're not displaying optimism, they're not going to do it. And so there comes a little bit of natural selection, so to speak, I think, that as you learn to lead and you learn to build teams, optimism is a required behavior. Otherwise, they just stop working. And so we think a lot of great founders are optimistic, whereas I actually believe a lot of great founders learn the behaviors of optimism in order to propel people to follow what it is you're trying to do. And the reason I think I'm saying this, and as I say, I'm thinking as I speak, is I don't want to discourage anybody who doesn't feel like they're optimistic from starting something. We start to reinforce these kind of patterns of doubt and lack of confidence. If you say, oh, I don't feel optimistic, oh, therefore I don't have ingredients to make a founder. And that I think does more harm than good. Whereas if we can turn around and say, it's a practice behavior. When you start working with others, you'll realize whether you can do it or not. And if you can do it, nailed it. Good job. So Chris, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in your journey as an entrepreneur that you want to pass on to your kids? Oh, biggest lesson. What I really want to tell uh, Eddie and Eddie part two <laughs> when, when they grow up isn't specific to being a founder, but it's, I think it naturally leans to being a founder or an entrepreneur. It, it is only do the things that fascinate you. Like, I don't, I don't care what he does when he grows up. I don't. I genuinely don't care. And I don't care his kind of what he, what he grows to consider his gender to be or his background or his belief systems. I don't care about that. Like, what I care about is how he does two things. The first is he's fascinated with everything that he does. And the second thing is he does it as brilliantly as he can. Those are the only two things I care about. And I live by that personally. Everything I try and do, I try to be fascinated with. And if I'm not fascinated with it, I'll pass it over if it's responsible to pass it over, or I'll stop if it's responsible to stop. And I'll always make sure I do it to the best that I humanly possibly can. Otherwise, I'm just cheating myself. And I can't necessarily correlate that with any outcome in particular, but, and so I can't say it's a lesson. I'd probably say it's more a philosophy. And I live by that day in, day out. 
I love that. It's one that uh, that theme is very strong that we hear about in Startup Dads. Uh, you know, it's something I talk a lot about at HX, which is the idea that you've got mastery comes from consistent effort and consistent effort comes from interest, mm. right? Yeah. And if you sure. have interest, you know, it's funny. It's very funny how if you can find something you're interested in, like you say, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's not hard to be great at it because you find it easy to spend time on it. And I think that's a super powerful life lesson to learn. Well, look, Chris, we have completely gone off piste <laughs> from my questions, which I think is great. Absolutely great. This has been one of a, a really unusual, different show. And I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for your, your honesty talking about your journey. I've, I'm really glad we've had a chance to talk about some of these things, actually. Um, you know, talking about some of the, you know, I've, I was writing my show notes here, early stage dad life. Forget about early stage startup life, early stage dad life, right? That's an interesting one to talk a little bit about. So um, it'd be a great one for our listeners. Before we go, can we hear your startup shout out? As our listeners know, startup shout out is a section where we shine a light on some people in the startup space, you know, that we admire. Startup shout out. So who's your startup shout out, Chris? Hell yes. And obviously I'm biased. They're going to come from the rattle. Um, <laughs> Absolutely fine. It is too many T's. They started as one of the UK's largest hip hop duos, Positive Vibe Hip Hop. And they turned into a startup with their entire mission is to make hip hop a party genre. And they just bring happiness to everybody who engages with anything that they do. It doesn't matter how miserable you might be in that moment. You listen to too many teas, you watch their videos, you go on their socials, you come to one of their parties, you will do nothing but get happier. They are so needed in this world. Love them. That is awesome. Well, in a show that talks a lot about optimism, happiness, I think that's a perfect way to wrap up. <laughs> Thank you. So Chris, look, by the time this uh, show goes live, uh, Eddie Part 2 will be here. <laughs> so all I can say is from Startup Dad's family to your family, very best of luck. How can we find a little bit more about you you know, what's going on on the rattle? Obviously, you've got slightly different priorities right now. Of course, like we're, we're a little bit quiet in front of the, the stage at the rattle, but we are the rattle.com is where you can find us. But if anybody genuinely, I love meeting people. It doesn't need an agenda. You can just email me at chris at the rattle.com and it'll be a joy to hear from anyone and everyone, if I'm honest. Brilliant. Well, again, thank you so much, Chris. Best of luck. Look forward to hearing about how everything goes. Oh, thanks so much, Anne. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 